Our topic, Test Everything, Part 2, The Authority and Supremacy of Scripture, and our text is 1 Thessalonians 5, 21-22. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And today our primary focus is going to be on one thing, although I have just a, a page of ending from last week. The right duty and necessity of private judgment by, of Christians. The right duty duty and necessity of private judgment. <clears throat> but I'll, I'll end with what I had uh, last week, and it'll help summarize what I did last week. And we, uh, of course, we had that quote from, that wonderful quote from Rush Dooney. When the state makes laws that contradict the word of God and persecutes or punishes people who reject their arbitrary and immoral laws, the state is placing itself above God. When our state says that homosexuality is a wonderful thing and we should be proud of it, it's contradicting the Bible and it's making itself God. It's saying God's law is immoral and what we teach is immoral. You need to, they're saying you need to reject the law of God and accept our law. When the state says gay marriage or sodomite marriage, it's doing the same thing. It's saying the Bible is immoral and it's some terrible thing and we're going to give you the the true justice and they're making themselves God they're placing themselves above God declaring what is right and what is wrong the state becomes the enemy of Christ and his people in those cases and we see that the issue of authority and an ultimate reference point to judge prove or test all things is absolutely essential for both church and state how do you protect yourself against arbitrary church authority and Lord willing, next week I'm going to point out all the corruptions that have happened in the church over the ages and why this is so critical. Your only protection, your only liberty from arbitrary decisions of men is the Bible. That's true, of course, with the state, too. If you don't have a law above the state, if the state creates its own law, then the state can do whatever it wants. And we see that today with the progressives, the Democrats, where if, if you, you, you do something they don't like, they'll try to put you in jail and they'll try to take all your money. Uh, but if the left-wing people do something that's crazy and wicked and cause billions of dollars in damage and burn buildings down and beat police up and so forth, they don't do anything because they believe that they create their own law. It's relativism taken to the max. <clears throat> the principle set forth by Paul, which is test or prove all things by the word of God, is to be applied to all books, philosophies, theologies, sermons, creeds and confessions, reasonings, civil and ecclesiastical laws and court decisions, ethics, worship, all of life. Period. It's absolutely essential. Areas of life that are circumstantial, what the Lutherans like to call adiaphora, things indifferent. Am I going to wear black shoes today or brown shoes? Am I going to wear a pink shirt or a purple shirt? Am I going to plant cherry tomatoes or beefsteak tomatoes? These things are under the general rules of the word. Okay, the Bible doesn't say brush your teeth, but the Bible says, you know, we need to take care of ourselves. We're a vessel to serve the Lord. We need to take care of our health to serve Christ effectively. So that a general principle 
our thinking. Decision attitudes and actions are to be carefully weighed by the balances of Scripture. They're to be tested in the crucible of the Bible's infallible truths. Whatever agrees with the inspired perfect word, we must believe, receive, strictly adhere to, apply to our lives, and habitually obey. The scriptures are our standard for a comprehensive life of discipleship and sanctification. What does not agree with the word must be rejected. Emphatically. Immediately. And replaced with a biblical counterpart. Psalm 119, 105 to 106. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn and confirmed that I will keep your righteous judgments. And that psalm we just sang talked about the blessedness of covenanting. Lord, I'm going to adhere to your law and I'm going to reject self-law. I'm going to adhere strictly to your law and reject human autonomy. Another one, Proverbs 6.23. For the commandment is a lamp and the law a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life. In Psalm 17.5, uphold my steps in your paths that my footsteps may not slip. And as Van Til would say, a wonderful statement, we are to think God's thoughts after him. Our, our thinking, acting, living, is to be receptively reconstructive. God's philosophy is our philosophy. God's law is our law. God's ethics are our ethics. God's way of life is our way of life. We reject autonomy, totally. And now we come to our main topic for the rest of today, which is the right duty and necessity of private judgment. Now next week, I'm going to talk about private judgment today, and then next week I'm going to talk about what private judgment does not mean. Okay, I'm not rejecting creeds and confessions and the importance of theology and learning from history. I'm not rejecting that, but we'll talk about that in detail next week. And um, So if you have any problems with what I say today, I'll, I'll, I'm sure I'll, you'll answer it next week. Biblical Christianity not only holds the sola scriptura or the Bible as the sole standard for faith and life, but also the right of Christians to judge for themselves all things by the word of God. And this is Paul writing to the Thessalonians. Test everything. He didn't say, well, test everything except what your pastor says. Test everything except what the church says. Test everything except what the state says. He didn't say that. Test everything. The right of private judgment when believers are to go directly to the scripture and carefully study and interpret it for themselves is forbidden by the Roman Catholic Church and all the cults. And I'll never forget, I, I, I went to a Jehovah's Witness Bible study and I whipped out the Gospel of John and started pointing out all these passages that say Jesus Christ is God. I was thrown out in five minutes. Since Vatican II, papists are permitted to read the Bible itself, but they can only read Roman Catholic translations, and they are given a set of interpretations which they must hold. And that's true of the uh, Ukrainian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, and Russian Orthodox churches as well. Uh, my wife was raised Ukrainian Orthodox, and uh, uh, her mom has a New King James Russian, or Greek or Russian Orthodox, well, Greek Orthodox Bible. And right in there, 
book of Romans, Paul declares justification by faith alone apart from the works of the law. And there's a footnote giving you the, the, the Greek Orthodox interpretation. This does not mean that we are not saved apart from works. <laughs> they explicitly contradict scripture. In the Roman Catholic Church, one must have an implicit faith in the current church hierarchy as well as past popes and bishops, for they are distributors of authoritative traditions and interpretations. The Roman Catholic Church is supposed to believe something because the Pope and bishops say so. Whether one personally knows scripture is irrelevant. And if, you, if you're not raised a Roman, I was raised a Roman Catholic, you may not know this, but prior to 1965, everything was done in Latin. So you'd go to church and you had no idea what was going on. It was all done in Latin. And then there was a the homily by the priest, which lasted about 10 to 15 minutes, which was generally worthless. People went to church. They were supposed to obey the church. And in the old days, I don't know what it's like now, but in the old days, they made sure you tied 10%. They'd go after you. They'd want to see your tax returns and stuff. I'm serious. I know. I'm older than I look. <clears throat> So whether one personally knows scripture in the Roman Catholic Church is totally irrelevant. Come to church, submit to the church, pay your money. The biblical Christian may have come to faith in Christ due to hearing a solid biblical presentation of the gospel. But once he becomes a Christian, he is commanded by Paul, test all things. Test everything. He is not to accept something relating to doctrine, worship, or ethics because someone says so, or because it is very old, or because the church teaches it, but because, or because it, but because it can be proved by the Bible. And these these you know, these Puritan discussion groups and Reform discussion groups show how far people most a lot of people don't understand this. They get into debates over doctrine. Calvin said this. John Knox said that. Rutherford said this, Gillespie said that, Burkhoff said this. Well, that's wonderful, but first prove it from Scripture. And then you can pull in Augustine and Calvin and all these guys. But people act like you quote one theologian against another. Well, that's what the early church, that's how the Roman Catholics got into trouble, because they started quoting unbiblical things done by the church fathers that were unbiblical on salvation and especially in worship. In debates over doctrine or practice, one should not simply argue that we must adhere to this teaching because these great church murder theologians held to it in the past or present. One must prove all things out of the Bible first. And this point is proved by the Holy Spirit's commendation of the Bereans in Acts 17.11. These, the Bereans, were more fair-minded, or literally, the Greek literally, noble, and that's in the King James, noble, than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether they th these things were so. The word noble, eugenes, where we get the, word, uh, the name Eugene, Translated fair-minded in the New King James Version refers to one who is high in rank, for example, a noble, a literal noble, 
or someone who is well-born. Paul is using the term any moral and intellectual sense here, meaning that the Bereans were more, imp more impartial, judicial, and devoted to understanding and knowing the truth. Professing Christians today are often careless, lax, gullible when it comes to listening to sermons or reading books. They accept ideas with little thought, reflection, and biblical analysis. Consequently, unbiblical ideas are often accepted as true or orthodox without biblical confirmation. Christian teachers are to be strictly held to the faith once delivered to the saints by the elders and the whole congregation. I mean, look, just back in 2002, look how easily the federal vision, it's a heresy. It's very similar to Roman Catholicism. You're saved by faith and the works that flow from faith, which is very similar to Romanism. And yet churches where the elders and the pastor adopted it, they just bought right into it. The whole Reformed Episcopal Church, I went to Reformed Episcopal Seminary in the late 70s. The whole Reformed Episcopal Church apostatized and adopted the whole thing. It's rife anywhere, and of course that brought in with it sacramentalism. When professing Christians accept everything without proving it using the Bible, various heresies are easily introduced. Pado communion the federal vision, sacramentalism, and in the ancient church, heresies relating to the Trinity and divinity of Christ were, were a horrible thing. Lord willing, next week I'm going to go through a list of all the her the amount of heresies in the first three centuries of the church that were a problem. It'll blow your mind. <laughs> there were so so many heresies, and I think that's why we have so they they developed the Nicene Creed and so forth. They developed really good statements on the Trinity and the divinity of Christ, the hypostatic union of the two natures in Christ. Paul was the greatest of apostles, and Silas was an evangelist. That means he had a special gift of the, of the Holy Spirit and could receive divine revelation. They had the gift of receiving direct revelations from God, which ceased with the close of the canon. Yet even in this case, God commands the Christians in Buria, commends them for going straight to the word of God to make sure everything was fully in accord with the teaching of Scripture. Paul wasn't all, how dare you? I'm an apostle. How dare you doubt my word or, you know, have to go search the scriptures to make sure everything I'm saying is true. How dare you do that? I'm Paul. No, I commend you. What a good Christian. You're more noble than these other Christians over here because you made sure everything I said was true. Well, if that's true in the case of Paul and Silas, it's certainly true for Pastor Joe Blow around the corner. We need to be able to prove everything from Scripture. Every Christian is responsible. Yeah, I tell people, learn the Westminster Standards. Read them over and over. Learn what they teach. Learn the proof texts. Be able to prove everything they teach by Scripture. How many Christians can prove the Trinity from Scripture? How many Christians can prove the true natures of Christ, fully, Christ is fully God and fully man in one person, yet they are not mixed, they're not confounded, they're not uh, separate things. A true union in one person. 
These are, these are doctrines that are somewhat difficult, but we need to be able to defend them. And they are defendable, very defendable by Scripture. They believe the gospel as preached by Paul and Silas. They believed it. But they took the time to carefully study the Scriptures to find out for themselves if the new teaching was found and consistent with the types, prophecies, and theology of the Old Testament canon. The Scriptures. Paul commends them. If I preach a sermon and somebody's in the congregation and says, well, I'm not sure about that, and he goes and he searches the Scriptures, I'm not worried about it. If you're preaching the truth and you're carefully proving everything you say with the Bible, you should welcome that. You should not be worried about it. The people that don't like it are people that are messing around and teaching things that are humanist, that are not consistent with the Scriptures. They resort to bare authority. How dare you doubt me? So Paul and Silas did not rebuke them for proving that everything they said was biblical. They desired to have them devote themselves to the study of God's word because they knew that if they possessed the Holy Spirit, it would only result in one verdict. Everything Paul and Silas said about Jesus and the gospel was absolutely true. All it can do is strengthen their faith. All it can do is confirm their faith in the Word of God and the truth of the Gospel. And boy, that's a good thing. That's a really good thing. When somebody's teaching heresy, uh, like the Federal Vision, and people uh, go back and try to find it in the Scriptures, and they find it's not in the Scriptures at all, it's made up, uh, that's a good thing. Heresy is cast aside, and the truth is confirmed. The evangelist Luke, who wrote the, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, placed this commendation in the scriptures as a shining example for every Christian to honor and imitate throughout the ages. Okay, this idea, well, you know, you're supposed to have a little devotional every day. You read your Bible a little in the morning, a little at night, and that's fine. But you should be studying the scriptures, not a quick reading through, oh man, I've I, I, I got to get going to work. Study the scriptures, learn the scriptures, understand the scriptures. Teachers, preachers, and writers of the truth are not afraid of their doctrines being tested by the scriptures. For truth is never afraid of the truth. Is it? Why do you think Biden and the Democrats lie virtually 100% of the time and change the subject 100% of the time? Because they don't have the truth on their side. They're afraid of the truth. They have to pretend the truth doesn't exist. They have to deny the truth by equivocations and lying. But people who have the truth don't have to do that. They can be straight up, up front. The scriptures will not refute their teaching, but only confirm it. But those teachers who have added something to the scriptures or are advocating some new heresy are afraid of their teachings being tested by the word of God. It is for this reason that the Bible was a forbidden book for laymen in the Roman Catholic Church for over a thousand years. I don't know if you knew that. <coughs> of course, the scriptures were in Latin. The people didn't speak Latin anymore. And uh, a lot of priests did, couldn't even read the Bible, which is how bad the church was at that time. But they were not allowed to read the Bible. 
It was on the list of forbidden books to laymen because they didn't want people learning the truth because the Roman Catholic Church had departed from the truth centuries earlier. And the Roman Catholic Church was essentially a very large power-hungry cult. It was not the true Church of Christ. Were there Christians in it who were inconsistent with the Roman Catholic teachings, as, as Calvin says? Yeah, sure. I, like I said, I met a Augustinian nun when I was a street preacher in Oakland, California, when I was a, a charismatic hippie in the 70s. And I was preaching my typical Armenian nonsense. An Augustinian nun stood there and listened to me. She came up to me and she pointed out all the errors in my sermon. And she was coming directly from Augustine. And she, she knew that me, a Baptist Armenian charismatic, she knew the gospel better than I did. Now, did she probably worship Mary and the saints and all that bad stuff? Probably. But she knew the gospel because she was a strict Augustinian. She read Augustine. She knew the gospel better than I did. I was wrong. And I remember when I became a Calvinist later and I got fired by the, by the group I worked with. I got fired right away when I became a Calvinist. I, I, I remember what she told me and I'm like, wow, she, she was right and I was wrong. Men were persecuted and put to death simply for printing Bibles in the people's native tongue. Burned at the stake for printing Bibles. That's true. When the scriptures were used as a test for books and preaching to make sure they are biblical, the result is that faith is strengthened and souls are sanctified. To carefully compare a sermon or a writing to God's word and weigh it with precious biblical meditation, it's not only right and wise, but it is commanded, it is a commanded duty by Paul, by our text. And I, there's many other places. It's a duty. It's a duty. That's why I'm not a Roman Catholic. I search the scriptures. So many of their teachings are totally unbiblical, I couldn't believe it. It's, it's shocking how bad it is. We find the same teaching in Isaiah 8, 19 to 20. A time of great declension in Israel. And when they say to you, seek those who are a medium and wizards who whisper and mutter. Should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. They don't have the truth. They don't have the light. They're wrong. The pagan nations consulted false gods, mediums, spiritists, astrologers as a source of truth and authority. The backslidden Jews had done likewise. But God speaking through the prophet says that our sole standard must be the law that is God's special revelation given to us to obey as our ethical standard and the testimony that is the whole history and system of doctrine and the divine revelation that must be believed. He's pointing them directly to the word of God. Whoever does not agree with the sacred scriptures must be rejected as one in spiritual, doctrinal, and ethical darkness. The only way to know what we are to believe, the meaning of life, salvation, ethics, and the way of godly dominion is to go to the scriptures and drink from that inspired, pure fountain of truth. If you're a teacher in the church, if you're a preacher in the church, if you write books as a Christian, 
everything you do must be tested by the Word of God, and you should not be afraid of it. That's why, if you're teaching the truth, don't worry. I've had many people who don't like me. I said, well, go to my website, reformedonline.com. There's a ton of books and stuff on there for free. Read it. And if I said anything that you can prove is unbiblical, I'll submit to it. Now, there's a lot of sermons against me on the Internet by full preterists and by um, uh, high church Episcopal, uh, Lutherans uh, over sacramentalism and uh, eschatology. But they're, especially the full preterists, their interpretations are absolutely ridiculous. Now, the assumption of this passage is that every Christian is personally responsible to test all teaching but God's written revelation. The 66 books of the Old and New Testament, <coughs> not the Apocrypha, which is accepted by the Roman Catholic Church, which is not inspired. Interesting history, but not inspired, and it's easy to prove that it's not inspired. To listen, adhere to, or follow philosophies, theologies, ethical systems, or concepts of salvation that find their origin in darkness instead of the clear light of Scripture is both foolish and deadly. Beloved, your soul is at stake. Do you know the Bible? Can you prove doctrines out of the Bible? Can you prove the five points of Calvinism? Can you prove Puritan worship? Can you prove justification by faith alone apart from the works of the law? Can you prove the true divinity of Christ and the true humanity of Christ in one person, the hypostatic union of the two natures in Christ? Let the full light of God's word shine in your hearts, on your hearts and minds. Study the word to show yourself approved. Make daily sure. Make doubly sure that your thinking and living is based squarely on the Bible. We live in a society that generally rejects the authority of divine revelation. The result is that politicians, teachers, so-called ethicists, university professors, and of course university presidents, as we've just seen, they couldn't even condemn, they couldn't even condemn people calling for the genocide of Jews. They were speaking just like Nazis in, in Germany during World War II. Those are the people running our universities. There is no neutrality. You reject the word of God. You reject the Bible. You reject Jesus Christ. This is what we get. Religious scholars and multitudes do not know the difference between right and wrong, truth and falsehood, good or evil. Our civil government doesn't know the difference between good or evil. Progressive cities, as long as you steal less than $950 or whatever it is, you don't even get arrested. They let murderers and rapists out and they go and kill people. They have no sanity. They don't know the difference between right or wrong, truth and error, justice and injustice. And their, their concept of justice is Marxism and class warfare and a bunch of racist nonsense. They're satanic to the very core and Christians better wake up or we're going to get persecuted. And it won't take that long. Just look at how much our country's degenerated just in the last 30 years. Do you remember that Joe Biden and Obama were against homosexual marriage? That wasn't that long ago. Today it is so bad that people cannot even tell the difference between a man and a woman. Note Paul's word. 
1 Timothy 6, 3-4a. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing. These people are idiots. They're fools. They're satanic. And they're running our country. And of course, the mainline churches are all run by Satanists. Well, let's look at the historical case briefly for private judgment. <coughs> the main historical alternative to sola scriptura and the requirement, that is the scripture alone, and the requirement of private judgment is the requirement to simply follow Mother Church. Mother Church says so. We've got to follow the church. The church is said to have intrinsic authority and laymen are told that they must have an implicit faith in the church. That's clearly what Roman Catholics teach. They are told that any challenge to the official doctrinal, ethical, ecclesiastical, or worship decisions of the church are automatically wrong, sinful, and rebellious. Once again, I was raised Roman Catholic. I've studied Roman Catholicism. Everything I'm saying is totally true. Of course, I'm sure there's liberal, a lot of liberal priests today who don't care what you believe. One has a duty to respect, honor, and obey Mother Church, we're told, no matter what she decides. The question is, we ask is, how has this view of blind submission to church authority served the kingdom of God and society? Well, it's been a total disaster because the church is not infallible and horrible heresies have arisen over and over throughout history. I'm going to go into more detail about that next week. There were heresies there were problems with heresy before the apostles died. You've heard of the Judaizers? And you read First and Second and Third John, and there seemed a, a proto-form of Gnosticism was already a problem. The Westminster Standards, approved 1647, are excellent in this regard. Let's just hear a couple quotes here. <clears throat> The Confession of Faith says that Scripture is to be believed and obeyed not on the testimony of men or the church, but wholly due to God, wholly due to God 1.4. It can only be received and believed if there is an inward work of the Holy Spirit, 1.5. Why do some people believe and other people do not believe? They hear the same gospel message. One guy's completely convicted of sin and bows the knee to Christ. The other guy says, what a load of baloney. And he leaves, laughing. The Holy Spirit was in one and not in the other. Scripture contains everything necessary for faith and life. 1.6. The infallible rule for interpreting Scripture is Scripture itself, not human or church traditions. 1.9. And here's a, a direct quote. 1.10. The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all councils of all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of man, and private spirits are to be examined and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other than the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scriptures. So the Westminster Standards fully endorse what I've said. And then just one more from the continent. The Second Helvetic Confession, 1566, totally agrees. This is uh, number two of interpreting the Holy Scriptures and the uh, Father's Councils and Traditions. And this is number four, five, four and five. Therefore, in controversies of religion or matters of faith, we cannot admit any other judge than God himself pronounced by the Holy Scriptures, which is true. Uh, what is true, what is false, what is to be followed, or what is to be avoided. So we do not rest but in the judgment of spiritual men drawn from the word of God. 
Certainly, Jeremiah and other prophets did vehemently condemn the assemblies of priests gathered against the law of God and diligently forewarned us that we should not hear the fathers or read tread under their path who, walking in their own inventions, ser served, swerved from the law of God. So whenever the church, mother church, strayed from the truth, the, God raised up prophets to condemn the church and tell people to reject their teaching. As we just read in Isaiah 8.20. Number five, we do likewise reject human traditions, which although they be sent with godly, goodly titles, as though they were divine and apostolic, delivered to the church by the lively voice of the apostles, and as it were by the hands of apostolical men, but means of bishops exceeding in their room, yet being compared with the scriptures, disagree with them, and by their disagreement betray themselves in no wise to be apostolical. For as the apostles did not disagree among themselves in doctrines of the apostolic scholars, did not set forth things contrary to the apostles. Nay, it were blasphemous to avouch that the apostles by lively voice delivered things contrary to their own writings. Paul affirms expressly that he taught the same thing in all the churches, 1 Corinthians 4.17. And again, we, says he, write none other things to you than what we read or acknowledge, 2 Corinthians 1.13. Also in another place, he witnesses that he and his disciples, who with apostolic men walked in the same way and jointly by the same Spirit, did all things. 2 Corinthians 12.18 The Jews also in times past had their tradition of elders, but these traditions were severely refuted by our Lord, showing that the keeping of them hinders God's law, and that God is in vain worshipped of such. Matthew, uh, Matthew 15.8-9, Mark 7, 6-7, end of quote. even the 99 articles, excuse me, the 39 articles, the Anglican 39 articles from 1571, recognize the supremacy of Scripture. Even the Anglicans, now they're inconsistent because they also say that the church has the right to decree, uh, the church has the authority to decree rites and ceremonies, which means the church has the authority autonomously to make up worship stuff. That contradicts this, but anyway, here's what they say. They, and by this the context, general church councils may err, and sometimes have erred, even in things pertaining to God. Wherefore, things ordained by them as necessary to salvation have neither strength nor authority, unless it may be declared that they be taken out of the Holy Scriptures. End of quote. So what I'm teaching here is nothing new. In the early 4th century, the Arian heresy arose. This heresy held to the idea that Jesus was the first created being. He wasn't God. He was a created being. He was a mere exalted creature like a mighty angel. And this, by the way, this is the same thing Jehovah's Witnesses teach today. According to Arians, Christ was lacking a genuine divine nature in every sense of the term. A church council in Bithynia, AD 323, called by Eusebius of Nicodemia, another churchman, ruled in favor of Arius and exhorted all bishops to retain the right hand of fellowship with Arius. So here's a church council. We like Arius. His teachings are fine with us. And Arianism spread like wildfire throughout the Eastern Empire especially in North Africa, Arabia, Palestine, Syria. And it's, it's interesting, you look at a map, and the areas that were firmly Aryan were all conquered by the Muslims.
after in, in the eighth century. God punished them. They all became Muslims. There are no Aryans today other than modern Aryans that were developed recently by like Jehovah's Witnesses. It was such a problem in the East that Constantine called a general council of bishops that was held in Nice, Nice, which I believe is in France, southern France, in AD 325. It consisted of 318 bishops, most of whom were from the Eastern Empire. At this council, the issue was vigorously debated and due primarily to the arguments of Athanasius, who was a deacon, he wasn't a bishop, he was a deacon. The correct biblical position was set forth against Arianism, that Jesus was fully God and fully man, of the same essence with the Father, equal in power and authority with the Father. Jesus is fully God in every sense of the term. They set in stone the orthodox doctrine of Christ, which is held by all Christian churches to this very day. And their statement is so beautiful and excellent and biblical that if you look at the Westminster Standards, if you look at the uh, creeds, the symbols from the continent by the Dutch and the Germans, they basically just restate what was said back in AD 325. They don't add anything new to it because it's so beautiful. Of course, it helped that the men studying the issue back then spoke Greek and knew Greek. It helped them very quite a bit, I think. Two church councils. One radically wrong and heretical. The other produced a masterpiece of orthodoxy. Now, why do we choose Nicaea, A.D. 325, and reject Bithynia, A.D. 323, only two years earlier? Here's why. Because Nicaea is easy to prove right out of the Bible. Well, Bithynia contradicts the explicit teaching of Scripture. Now, I have a little booklet I wrote on the divinity of Christ. Christ affirmed his own divinity on a number of occasions, and the Jews understood that he was teaching that he was God. I and the Father are one. Before Abraham was born, I am. And they took up stones to stone him because him, uh, he was proclaiming himself to be God. The need to prove church teachings, the findings of councils, as well as creeds, confessions, catechisms, and all articles of faith by scripture is also found in other historical controversies. The apostolic and anti-Nicene fathers consistently rejected paintings and sculptures of Christ as idolatrous violations of the second commandment. Yeah, Christ was a real human being, and if you were there on earth, you could see him. But he's also fully God. So now that he's ascended to heaven and we have no idea what he looked like, we know he was Jewish. We know that he was nothing special about his looks, according to Isaiah. But we don't know what he looked like. So to make a painting of him would be a, not only a lie, but because the divine and human natures are united, it would be a form of idolatry. And it was rejected. By the late 4th century, pictures of Christ as well as Mary and the saints became popular and accepted by most as objects of devotion and worship. Eventually, kissing, praying to, and bowing before statues and pictures was accepted in the West, while the worship of pictures or icons was accepted in the Eastern Church. This rank idolatry was officially accepted and promoted by the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox communions. And I 
I didn't take the time to look it up, but what's really interesting is there was a there was a church council in the East called by the emperor who was against the worship of pictures. And they condemned the icons and said they have to be taken out of the churches. Then that emperor was replaced by a new emperor who was in favor of idolatry, and that council ruled in favor of icons, and that's still held by the church to this very day. The danger of heresy, the danger of idolatry and violating the scriptures. Now, over time, the apostolic doctrine of justification by the imputed righteousness of Christ received by faith alone, apart from the works of the law, was rejected and replaced by justification by faith and works. Okay, instead of the imputation of Christ's righteousness, you get an infusion of grace, of the Spirit. And as you cooperate with grace over time, and if you become righteous enough, God will justify you. That's Romanism. And that's heretical. The imputation of Christ's righteousness was played by an infusion of grace, which supposedly led to good works that enabled the believer to earn or merit justification. This rejection of the biblical doctrine of salvation is found in both Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox creeds. That's why, as far as well-being goes, these are false churches. We have to regard them as false churches. Will there, are there Christians there that are inconsistent with the teaching? Probably, yeah, and Calvin would say so. But we have to regard these churches as constitutionally apostate and wicked. The Reformer, Martin Luther at the Leipzig Disputation in 1519, remarked that Huss was unjustly burned at the stake by the order of the Council of Constance. Huss was a very godly man who was basically preaching Protestantism very early. That general councils as well as popes may and have erred, and that the church has no right to impose any article of faith that is not founded upon the scriptures. And he concluded the debate, the debate with these words. Quote, keep in mind, he's talking to these Roman Catholic doctors, these Roman Catholic apologists. Quote, I am sorry that the learned doctor only dips into the scripture as a water spider onto the water. Nay, that he seems to flee from it as the devil from the cross. I prefer with all deference to the fathers the authority of the scriptures, which I herewith recommend to the arbiters of our cause. You've ever, ever seen a water spider? They float on the water. They don't go in the water, they float on the water. And Philip Schaff's comments on the significance of this disputation are noteworthy. He says this, quote, The importance of this theological tournament lies in this, that it marks a progress in Luther's emancipation from the papal system. Here, for the first time, he denied the divine right and origin of the papacy and the infallibility of the general council. Henceforward, he had nothing left but the divine scriptures, his private judgment, and his faith in God, who guides the course of history by his own spirit through all obstructions by human errors to a glorious end. The ship of the Reformation was cut from its moorings and had to fight with the winds and waves of the open sea. End of quote. What a beautiful quote. Sola Scriptura. Sola Scriptura. Even among Protestants, there are many examples of errors. Luther, great old Luther, we love him, he embraced the absurd doctrine of consubstantiation, that Christ's true blood and true flesh 
is interspersed among the elements of the bread and the wine so that you're actually consuming the literal blood and the literal flesh of Christ. He's trying to compromise with transubstantiation. It's a ridiculous doctrine, unsupportable by scripture. John Wesley became a semi-Pelagian or Arminian and a perfectionist. Many Puritans embraced the governmental theory of the atonement in New England. They became total heretics. They embraced also deism and then Unitarianism. Why do you think New England is the most liberal, corrupt, rotten part of the United States today? Because of the apostasy of the Puritans. Most of the Puritans and Presbyterians have in practice abandoned the regular principle of worship for Arminianism, humanistic worship. Norman Shepard and the many prominent ministers recently abandoned justification by faith alone or the doctrines of pure grace for a system of faith plus works. See, what, do you understand what I'm saying? How do you know which preacher to follow? How do you know which creed to follow? How do you know which counsel to follow? The one that agrees with Scripture. The one that agrees with Scripture. All the mainline Protestant denominations have abandoned the inspiration, perfection, infallibility, and authority of Scripture, and consequently are totally apostate, satanic, and evil, with sodomite and lesbian ministers, with homosexuals practicing homosexuality, perverts, the National Council of Churches supported communists in Africa who were murdering missionaries. These people are Marxists masquerading as Christians. They're satanic to the very core. There are many dozens of professing Christian denominations with all sorts of dangerous errors, practices, and heresies. The history of the Christian church has won a great declension with some comparatively brief periods of reformation due to the certain churchmen exercising their private judgment, and boldly rejecting errors and heresies. Thank God for Zwingli. Thank God for Luther. Thank God for Calvin. Thank God for John Knox. Thank God for the Second Reformation, Rutherford, Gillespie, and many others. Thank God that men said, I'm not going to follow that nonsense. It's not biblical. Here's what the Bible says. And they proved it using the Bible. The history of the church makes it very clear that one cannot simply trust one's pastor and elders for pastors and elders have frequently been wrong. The horror stories I could tell you of the behavior of Reformed pastors and elders and Reformed Baptist pastors and elders. There was a guy, he was in an area, there weren't any good churches. There was one Reformed Baptist church and he was an exclusive psalm singer. And he mentioned it to a few people in the church. He was met the next week in the parking lot. Don't come to our church or we'll call the police. Why? because he believed that the church should sing inspired songs. They didn't want to debate him over what was right, because they couldn't debate him. They didn't have any proof, so they used coercion. They acted like Satanists. They acted like the state, a wicked statist. Moreover, one cannot blindly accept any find, every finding of the church council, for most councils in history have taught errors and even deadly heresies. No Christian is safe from errors, heresies, and heterodox practices unless he obeys Paul's command, test all things. And let me tell you, let me tell you, the Assemblies of God and these charismatic churches, they have creeds. And they have serious, rotten errors in their creeds. And then briefly, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up here. Historically, heresies, errors, and the corruption of worship have come about in two different ways. Doctrinal deviations and heresies usually are introduced by some prominent teacher in the church. 
some intellectual. His error becomes popular with other pastor teachers and then is spread among the people. And like modernism, for example, came from the seminaries. It all came from the seminaries and it spread to the pastors. And then from there it spread to the people. And the moment they had power, they started persecuting and driving out the fundamentalists. You've heard of Machen. Superstitious practices and corruptions in worship have often begun among the laity. And once these corruptions have become very popular, church officials are afraid to oppose them for pragmatic reasons and often go along to get along. They weren't teaching the regular principle for decades. People didn't know why they were singing psalms without musical instruments, so people looked at the churches around them that were not reformed and started doing what they were doing. And the pastors were either ignorant or didn't have the guts to stand up to the, to the heirs. Once errors and corruptions are widely accepted as the norm, the church will often change their church orders or standards to reflect the new declension. Pastors and theologians come up with sophisticated arguments to defend the new errors and unbiblical practices against the minority of the faithful who stand as witnesses against the errors. At this stage, the church communion becomes officially and constitutionally corrupt in order to maintain the new status quo. The arguments against exclusive psalmody have not changed in 150 years. They're basically the same. And they're absolutely ridiculous. You've got to see my the second edition of my exclusive psalmody book, which a buddy of mine has been editing and he's taking a sweet time, but I want to get it out. But I, I, I show their arguments are ridiculous. Due to this new situation, the church authorities can either force the faithful to, to depart with discipline or threats of discipline. And I know a lot of people, they're, they're threatened with discipline and they just leave. Or they can adopt a humanistic form of pragmatism coupled with loose subscriptionism, which is essentially irrational. In our, and this is true of the OPC and PCA and to a certain extent the RPCNA. We allow five different positions with regard to this doctrine. These are all acceptable, even though they contradict each other. That's irrationalism. And of course, it denies the perspicuity of Scripture. Many crucial truths of Scripture and biblical practices are treated as optional or liable to many different interpretations. The perspicuity of Scripture is implicitly denied, and the biblical achievements of our spiritual fathers is rejected for an implicit doctrinal relativism. That's what's going on in the PCA and the OPC. You can be high church in the OPC and PCA. You can have a certain amount of sacramentalism. It's okay with us. You can have all kinds of weird perversions of worship. It's okay with us. At the PCA, at their General Assembly, or whatever they call it, Synod, they had liturgical dancers. Genuine church unity, based on doctrinal integrity and confessional honesty, is rejected for a Romanistic, pragmatic, humanistic type of ecclesiastical rule where don't rock the boat is more important than true Christian orthodoxy. Don't rock the boat. What did they do in the days of John Knox and Calvin and Luther? I have the truth. Let's debate. Let's debate. Using scripture. They're afraid to debate now. Because I don't have the truth. The biblical attainments of the Reformation are watered down and denied in the name of love and unity. It is obvious, <coughs> given the history of the church, that we are commanded by God to test or prove all things because we need to. 
for our spiritual protection and ultimately for the protection of the church as well. We need it. During the 1630s, the Prelatists of England sent Episcopal theologians and apologists throughout Scotland in order to get the Presbyterian laity to abandon Puritan biblical worship and Presbyterian church government. They gave up on the pastors. These guys aren't going to convert to our view. Let's get the laymen to reject their pastors by teaching them our views. Well, this tactic completely failed. Because simple peasants, farmers, and craftsmen could easily refute the unbiblical arguments of the prelatists. They were shocked at the knowledge of scripture of these simple peasants who refuted all their arguments from the Bible. It's absolutely true. Consequently, the Episcopalians gained no ground. The covenanted reformation remained secure. No person, no family, and no church are safe from progressive declension and decay if they do not prove all things by the word of God. You see how important this is? Now, I've seen Sproul preach a number of times, and I saw him, he said in a sermon I saw, oh, churches, all churches go apostate eventually. That's just the way things are. All churches, he said that. And I disagree. They don't have to. They don't have to. Now, because of sin, if churches aren't diligent, that will happen. That will happen. And then, with the biblical duty of private judgment there, without it, there would have been no Protestant Reformation. It was Luther's private judgment that exposed Tetzel's wicked system of indulgences that had been approved of by the highest authorities in the church. When you look at those beautiful pictures of uh, the Basilica in Rome, that was built with the money that Tetzel raised. I don't know if you know that. That that's in God's providence. It's 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 amazing. The Vatican, that beautiful building and complexes in architecture, was all caused the Reformation. It was Luther's protest of that. You know, when when the money falls in the bucket, a soul is released from purgatory. I'm paraphrasing what Tetzel would say. But the money used to build that caused the Reformation indirectly. It contradicted Scripture and it had to be rejected. His private judgment rejected the papal church's doctrine of salvation by faith plus human merit or works. That is an infused righteousness instead of an imputed righteousness. His personal exegesis of the book of Romans retrieved the true gospel of pure grace from centuries of deadly heresy. One by one, the gross unbiblical practices, human traditions, and false doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church were destroyed intellectually and replaced by the truths of Scripture. This was all accomplished by the Spirit-filled men of God, such as Zwingli, Calvin, Luther, Knox, and many others. It was private judgment that set much of Europe free from darkness, corruption, heresy, and abominable idolatries of the papal supremacy and image worship. You see, all the great blessings we enjoy today of biblical Christianity are due to godly Christians who examine the Bible for themselves to see if what the Roman Catholic Churchmen and traditions affirm was actually true. What could be proved from the scriptures, such as the divinity of Christ, the hypostatic union of the two natures, divine and human, and the person of Jesus of Nazareth, and the Trinity, etc., they retained 
because they're taught in Scripture. But what was contrary to or could not be proved from Scripture was rejected in favor of only what the Bible teaches. They smashed the dark chains of human traditions and arbitrary humanistic rules and doctrines by allowing the pure light of Scripture to inform their thinking. They relied on and studied intensely the whole Bible and their use of private judgment saved millions and generations from the abominations of Rome. I was raised Roman Catholic my whole life. Until I left home, of course. And I, I didn't have one clue about what the gospel was. I didn't know anything about biblical worship. I knew nothing. Obviously, we do not believe and honor Paul's teaching on the need of the requirement of private judgment. We are ignorant, deluded, and ungrateful for this precious truth. So we'll stop there. Next week, I'm going to look at objections to this. You know, well, do we go to Scripture as though we've, there is no church history? And I'm not saying that. And we'll, we'll, explore, we'll explore that. But this is critical. We are to read the Bible not simply for helping personal sanctification, personal godliness. Of course, that is crucial. But you have to be able to prove everything from Scripture. This body of doctrine, this apostolic doctrine, once delivered to the saints in the days of when the apostles were alive and the evangelists were still alive, that we possess is precious. And without it, you cannot be saved. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for these precious truths. Give us a love of your holy word. Give us a desire to read it, to study it, to learn it so that we may be able to prove all things. Test everything by your sacred scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen.